uh, we're going to be in, in, uh, in, as I said, in Genesis chapter 30 and, and following. I think what the next uh, couple of chapters here, what they really speak to is, uh, is self-reliance. Is self-reliance. Self-dependency. Um, being self-motivated. Being self-willed. Being self-sufficient. When I think about my own life and I think about the level of my own self-sufficiency, my self-reliance, it has been very high. Uh, because of this, and that is I grew up as a middle child, and so obviously every middle child believes that they were abused in some way, and so therefore, I mean, mom and dad didn't take as many pictures of me. Uh, they didn't like me as much as my brothers or whatever, but uh, so maybe I felt like I got dealt a bad hand from the very beginning, but I became a self-reliant person. Uh, in, in some respects, for some reason, I believed I needed to fend for myself. And so as I got older, I, I realized that I needed to work hard. If, if anything was going to happen in my life, I had to work hard for this. This kind of goes along with, you know, uh, you know, our country. I mean, we're self-reliant people, self-made men and women. Uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and we're going to get it done. We're going to make it happen. And that's, that's who I was. And so I, I worked very hard to be somebody who was uh, self-reliant. I did not need to rely on anybody else's stuff because no one was going to give me a handout. And so that's what I believed needed to happen. And so in my, uh, you know, teen, early teen years, I worked really hard over one summer. And by the time I was 14, I bought my first pickup. It was a 1972 three-quarter ton uh, Ford Camper Special that was all smashed on one side, but it was mine. It was completely mine. And it had a 400 in there that probably came out of a Ford Ranchero. And I would race everybody and, and beat them in this this truck, even though it looked like hell on wheels, really. That's what it looked like. And so I was very self-reliant. I fixed my own truck. I, I bought my own stuff. I, I did my own thing. And then as I got later, uh, later on in life, as I, when I met my, uh, my to-be wife, I had come to this point for some reason. I don't know where I, uh, I got this, but I didn't want anyone else giving me value to my life. I didn't want anybody else to be able to say that they had given me something. I honestly don't know where I got this. But there was this pride and this arrogance that, was, that resided in me and probably still resides in me to some level or another. And this pride and this arrogance led me to believe uh, that I, I cannot get married. I cannot get into this relationship because I knew I had actually had a dream and I, I'm not the type of person that gets dreams from God, but I've, I had this dream that God told me, you're going to marry Chris Neely. And I was like, God, I'm not marrying Chris Neely. I mean, that's just, that's just my wife's not here to defend herself. She was probably thinking the same thing. I'm never marrying that guy. But, I, but we were such good friends that it just seemed so out of the question that that would happen. But in my mind, what I actually thought to myself was, I've got to make some, I, had, I thought these words, I need to make something of myself before I settle down with anybody. I'm going to do something big, and I'm, and I'm going to make sure that I get the glory for this before I marry this one. I'm not going to allow my life to be dictated uh, or be run by, perhaps, maybe. I don't know what I was thinking. But for some reason, I was so self-reliant, I was so self-willed that I just w lived my life in this way. And guess what? That disposition worked its way out in my life with God. That's the way that I was with other people. That's the way that I was with God. 
That's so, and, and ultimately what happened is, the, is, is this self-willed life came out in my relationships. No one's going to take advantage of me. It, led me. it led me to a violent way of at least thinking and at times dealing with people. There was a violence about me. There was a mistrust about me. I can't trust anyone else but myself. And ultimately that led to my relationship with God. In fact, it probably began with that. As I was not reliant on God, I was also not reliant on anybody else. So my relationships were broken all the way around. But Jesus clearly speaks to this. Jesus clearly speaks to this idea, like in Matthew 19, when he says, it's easier for a rich man. He says, again, I t Matthew 19, verse 24, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because of this. It's because when you have everything that you need, when you are capable, when you are powerful, when you have all of this stuff, when you have money, you don't need anything else. You're not reliant on him. But here's the thing. Relationship with God is built on the foundational principle that I must rely on him. I must trust him him for everything that he can bring to me. I must trust him that he's the only thing that I need. Yet our culture, our life, our world is built on the idea that I don't, mean, that I don't need anything. And in fact, people will say that religion is just a crutch. It's a crutch to get by in life. And ultimately, I would say it's more than a crutch. It's a wheelchair, man. Relationship with God is a wheelchair. It's saying this, I'm completely dependent upon God. And Jesus is saying in that verse, he's saying, listen, you can, cannot come into my kingdom. You cannot be a part of my stuff. You can't have relationship with me if you are self-willed, self-reliant, and you believe that it's you that's going to get you in. It doesn't work that way. It can't happen. And this is what Jacob learns throughout this story. And so I want to show you this. In chapter 30, verse 25, it begins to talk about, in your Bible it might say, Jacob's prosperity. We just got done kind of talking about how Jacob had, has, uh, he's been mar he got married to two, two women. Really, he was tricked. Here he is, this deceiver, this trickster. And all of a sudden, he is tricked by Laban, his uncle. Instead of giving, getting the wife that he thought he was going to get, when he went into the, the, the honeymoon suite that night, uh, he got a different wife, uh, wife. He got Leah, the one who wasn't as attractive as Rachel. And so he makes a deal with Laban, and Laban says, okay, I'll give you the other one if you work for me for another seven years. And so Laban is just as much a deceiver as Jacob is. Jacob has had a lifetime of deceit and lying and tricking and striving after his own stuff. He's been so self-willed, saying, I'm going to get that blessing no matter what I have to do. I'm going to get the blessing. And so he tricks his brother the first time. He tricks his father the next time. And here he is finally in this situation. But God had given him a promise. He said, I am with you. And I'm not going to leave you until I've done in you what I've promised to do in you. And so God had given him this promise. He went to live with Uncle Laban because he had totally ticked off his brother Esau by stealing his blessing. Here he is. He's married with these two wives. 
And we talked last week about how this is this, this amazing Jerry Springer-style dysfunctional family, and he's, he's getting each of them pregnant, and I mean, just craziness going on. Many times we think about these biblical characters we've said over the last uh, several, or se- several months, I should say, is the 29th sermon in Genesis, by the way. But what we've seen is the pattern of people, the pattern of hum- uh, humanity, that regardless of whether they have a relationship with God or not, they're still messed up. And that's Jacob's deal as well. And so he's been tricked, and here he is, but it soon begins to talk about uh, what's happening next. And it says this in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have uh, given you. But Laban said to him, if I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination, that's through some sort of sorcery or something like that, or superstition, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. How he figured that out through superstition, we do not know. It does not answer that question. Verse 28 says, name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned, but now when I shall provide for my own, when shall I provide for my own household also? So Jacob is basically saying, hey, uh, listen, you have really thrived under my help, and really God has allowed your wealth to increase as I've worked for you. Now I've, I've got to provide for myself. And so him and Laban make this deal, and the deal is basically, you take all the messed up sheep and goat and cattle or whatever, and I'm going to take all, all the good ones, and you can take those, and you, can, you, you uh, are, are going to shepherd my flock still, but you can take these, and those will be yours. Well, that same day, Laban takes all of those speckled goats and the mottled whatever, all of these things with stripes on them, and he takes them out uh, away about a three days journey, sends them with his other kids. And so here's Jacob, who's been tricked again by Uncle Laban. And so Jacob begins in his self-willed way to use some type of superstition again. He takes some sticks and he, uh, he makes white strips in them. If you were to take a stick and you were, to, you were to peel the bark off it, you'd see a white stripe. And so there's like this superstition of, you know, like if an animal, while it's mating, I know this is kind of weird, while it's mating were to see a striped piece of wood, then maybe their child or their, their whatever, the, whatever that thing that comes out of their, their baby, what's that? Lamb, is it just a lamb? I don't know. Kid, a kid too, like a goat. Yep, okay. Uh, yeah, somebody from, from, not Sayo, Silverton, there we go. We need somebody from the sticks to tell me what I'm talking about here. Okay, so uh, while, these, while these things are mating, they look at these sticks and maybe, uh, you know, whatever they birth comes out, mottled, speckled, spotted, and so forth. I'm doing a horrible job. Uh, right now, but we'll keep going here. Verse 43 says, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. And so what happened was this, was that Jacob worked hard. He worked very hard, and he began to grow in wealth. Now the next chapter says this, chapter 31 says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. 
And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sees that bad stuff is on the horizon. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to take off and go to my, my hometown, to my country. And then God confirms this. And he says, yes, I want you to go back to where you're from. I want you to go back to Bethel is basically what he's saying. So Jacob calls his, wife, his wives to him. And he says, hey, your, your dad uh, doesn't like me. But what you'll see in these few verses here is it says this. In verse 4, the end of verse 4, it says, or verse 5, but the God of my father has been with me. Look at uh, the end of verse 7, but God did not permit him to harm me. Look at verse 9, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So here's Jacob, who's been a self-willed person. He's been trying to make things happen on his own over and over again. And here he is, he's beginning to give credit to God. He did a little bit with Laban, and now here he is. Instead of striving after his own stuff, he begins to start to acknowledge God for all the things that he has. He begins to acknowledge God for the mercy that he's received in his life. And what you must see, and what you must acknowledge, and what you must know is this, is that in the midst of your life, you have things that are going well. You, you, have, you have a job. You, have, you probably have some level of security. And one of the things that we always get wrong is this, is that we take credit for all the things that have taken place in our life, just like Jacob had from the very beginning. He deceived in order to try to get blessing, and it left him with nothing. He deceived. He tried, he tried to get blessing. He tried to, to steal. He tried to do all these things. It got him nowhere. But then ultimately what ends up happening is that God ends up blessing him and he begins to see it. Do you see the way that God has blessed you? Do you see all the ways that God has blessed you by simply even, even living in this country of ours? You might say, well, it's, it's not really that great or whatever. And, uh, what, what, <laughs> I I don't care what you say necessarily in regards to that. We're the richest country in the history of the world. We are people who are incredibly blessed, and yet we are so prone, just like the rich man, to not even need God. And so what's the first step here? The first step is to understand and to see that God is the one who's provided everything that you needed. And so that is what he figures out. And then we see in verse 11 of chapter 31, Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate and the flock that are striped and spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And here is God speaking to this guy. He's speaking to him and he's working in his life. Now think about all of the things that I've been repeating over and over again in the beginning of this sermon about what a bad guy Jacob has been. And yet God is still with Jacob. God is still working in Jacob's life. God is still speaking to Jacob. God is communicating his blessing and leading him. See, God still works in the midst of our self-reliance. God is still working on us. 
God is still working to bring about the end result that he desires in your life. And so one of the the aspects of our faith is not just that I believe that God exists, that I believe that Jesus went to the cross, but beyond that, which is this, that God, you are the one who's able to change me. You're the one who can change me. When you think about your life and you think about all the crap that you've done, and all the stuff that you've entered into and that the wrong relationships perhaps, the bad business deals, the lying, the cheating, the, the gossip, the backbiting, the lack of love that you've had for your neighbor, the lack of love that you've had for God, what you must see is this, is that your reliance can still not be on you to change that. Your faith extends beyond just in the existence of God, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, It has to extend into the reality that God is going to finish his work. In fact, many of you know the verse Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6, where Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's not saying, okay, I'm so, I'm so happy that you're, that you're doing this and that you're, you're going to be self-willed and self-reliant. You're going to keep doing this. No, he says, and I'm sure of this. I'm not sure of the fact that I think you're great people necessarily. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Men and women, your faith cannot be in yourself on any level in your relationship with God. It must be from head to toe in God and that he is able to bring this good work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that is at the final day. So Jacob talks to his wife, said, we got to get out of here. They say, hey, dad sold us to you. Forget him, let's go. So that's what they do. They say, Whatever he's, whatever's God told you, let's, let's do that. And so it says in verse 20, And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He tricks Laban his uncle. And, he's, and, and so Laban's out doing something else. He's like, get the stuff, get in the car, let's go. So they hit the road with all of these animals and whatever trying to make this stealth getaway. And so they're on the road. They're trying to get away. Laban gets super angry. Verse 24, but God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, Jacob, again, is still living out his trickster, his deceiver, his heel-grabbing nature because he tricks Laban. Even in carrying out God's will, he's tricking people in doing that. Now think about that for a second, that you and I, even though we have begun to walk with God, even though we we started relationship with him, we're still doing things that are not right with God. We're tricking people in order to carry out God's means, and we make that excuse, but that's never right. And so I think it's very clear that that God wants us to see that Jacob isn't completely sanctified yet. 
Jacob isn't all of a sudden like, okay, I had this you know, moment with God where I saw the, the angels ascending and descending on this ladder, and it's amazing, and so I had this come to Jesus moment, and I went to camp, or I went on a mission trip, or I went and did something, and now all of a sudden, everything's better. I got baptized. I'm, I'm perfect now. But that's not the case. We still see a little bit of Jacob coming out. We still see Jacob. And so Laban finally catches up to him, and he says in verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm, but God, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And so he listens to that. And so what's God doing in that moment? God intervenes in the life of Jacob because Laban was going to come after him, and Laban was intent on hurting him. He basically says, hey, I'm a wounded father. You ran away with my grandkids. You ran away with everything. You ran away with my daughters after all that I've done for you kind of a deal. But God comes to him and says, watch it. <laughs> don't cross my boy Jacob, all right? Don't, don't, don't cross him. And so Laban decides to make a, a treaty with him. They, they decide to, uh, to come to a point of resolution, which is what they do. Now, on the way out, Rachel steals her dad's little idols, steals her gods. We have no idea why she does this. It doesn't really tell us why she has done this. It might be to get back at her dad. It might be because her dad has used these little gods, these little idols, these little figurines for divination as he had done before, and in hopes that he wouldn't find them, she took these. But we're not really sure what happened. And so Laban is really angry that these figurine gods have been stolen. And so he's really coming after them uh, for this. And so Jacob has no idea that she's stolen these gods and he defends himself. But he wraps up by saying this. He said, uh, these, in verse 41, he says, These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Look at what Jacob is continuing to do. He's continuing to give credit to God. God is the one who's preserving me. God is the one who's leading me. He's getting close to being reliant upon God now. And so Laban responds, and he says in verse 43, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, but what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant. So this is where they make that treaty. I was a little ahead of myself before. And so Jacob swears by basically the God of his father Isaac that he is not going to cross Laban again, and so that piece of the story ends but now here's Jacob. He's heading back into the promised land. He's, or he's heading back into Canaan, I should say. He's heading back into Canaan, and what's, what's taking place here is that he's getting close to his home turf. And there's something that he's got to deal with because in his past, the guy was such a punk that he completely deceived his dad and his brother. And if you remember the end of that story, Jacob and Esau, Jacob has stolen the blessing and Esau's begging his dad, saying, Dad, don't you have another blessing? 
And Jacob says, I have not reserved anything for you. I've given everything to Jacob. And, and, and Esau is begging his dad with tears. And he's saying, Dad, bless me, even me, right now. And that's where he left off with his brother. And he says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And so mom and dad send Jacob away, and that's why he's with Uncle Laban. And so here he is. He's coming back into town. And so this is what it says in chapter 32, verse 1. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now Jacob has gone into or out of Canaan, out of God's land for him that he's going to give him. And on his way out, he has this vision of angels going up and down the ladder. And now here he is, he's coming back in. And he has this vision of these angels. And he sees the presence of God. He experiences seeing God. Now, it may be that the angels are guarding this land, this land that God had given him. We don't know exactly. But what it is clearly showing is this, is that these angels are encamped around him. They're with him. God's presence, God's power is with Jacob, even in the midst of tricking his father-in-law again, even in the midst of all of this stuff, here's God's presence, and he's with him. Do you remember what God said to him as he was leaving? I will be with you. I will be with you. And God is showing him over and over again, I'm with you. I'm speaking to you. I'm talking to you. And so Jacob sees it for what it is. He sees that God is with him in this. And so Jacob sent messengers, it says in verse 3, to Esau, his brother, to the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Stop there for a second. He's referring to his brother. He's calling him my Lord. Do you remember what he was trying to do? He was trying to be Lord over Esau. He was trying to get the upper hand, the ascendancy of his brother. And now here he is coming back into town. And he's so fearful that he has to refer to Esau as my Lord. But it's a great tone that he's taking. Because here he is as an arrogant man who's been self-willed and self-dependent and trying to get all that's his. And now here he's coming back in and he's humbled. He's finally humbling himself before his brother. And so he says, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord, that's Esau, in order that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob sends a message. He says, let's just get this over with. I'm going to send a servant. He's going to tell him, and I, I'm going to let him know, hey, I've got some stuff for you. He's basically saying, hey, I don't really want to fight with you. And so what happens? Verse 6, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there's 400 men with him. Why does Esau need 400 men to come and say hi to his brother Jacob after he hasn't seen him for a while? Now, it may be like, you know, if, if you have siblings uh, who do really well, and when they come to, like, family dinner, they, like, you know, pull up in a Lamborghini, and they're like, check it out. You know, like, I've been really successful, and they want to show off. It, it potentially could be that. 
But it's probably not that. It's probably that Esau is really, really, really uh, upset. And he is ready to kill Jacob. Perhaps he's been thinking all of his life, I, I'm going to kill that kid when I see him, that sniveling little brother. I'm going to hurt him so bad. And so he brings a regiment with him of 400 people, and he is coming. And so he comes back, and he says that, and the, the messengers come back, and they say that. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And so he starts organizing things. He starts saying, okay, you guys go over here. You guys go over there. Let's, let's try to separate all this stuff. And then what happens next is this. is that he finally is at the end of himself to a degree. And he finally prays. And I, and, I, and I wonder just for a second here if you've ever had to pray like that. You know, maybe you got the diagnosis and you go, oh, this is bigger. I know there's many of us in this room that have dealt with that. You got a, a terminal diagnosis. You got a forever diagnosis. You don't know what it is, but the doctor says it's not good. And you finally are like, oh, man. Or maybe it's just complete devastation on some level where you finally just go, I can't fix this. I can't make it happen. And, you, and you, you finally just go, and, and what happens next is this, is that all of the other prayers that come before this, everything, every token thing that you've ever said to God up until this point, it's all kind of been lip service. Yeah, God helped me with that. God helped, yeah, God made you successful in that. God this, God that. I've been going to church, been doing things, whatever. But you haven't really known God. Like there hasn't been like this relationship where you've been reliant on God where you've had to completely give up everything for him. <clears throat> and so you begin to pray, maybe in a way that feels like it's the first time you've ever prayed. And I, I remember that night. I remember where I was sitting. I remember the truck that I was in. I remember the direction that I was facing when I prayed one of those prayers to God. And I remember just feeling so frustrated with God. And I remember feeling like everything was coming apart. God, how could you? And I'm angry with God. And I'm finally praying a prayer that says, I'm angry with you because I realize that you're the only one that could fix this. And you know what my anger was? My anger is that I'm finally realizing that I'm not in control. I'm angry because I realize I really don't control this situation. God's the one who controls this. See, we think that we're getting away with something like, oh yeah, God, you know, you're, you're a jerk for doing this to me, or I don't like you because of this, or I don't like you because of that. But the reason why we're angry oftentimes is because now we're losing control. We're losing the illusion of control. And he's not angry, but he's having a real prayer time. And he says this, O God of my father Abraham 
And God of my father Isaac, I'm in verse 9, by the way. My father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. And what's he, he's reminding God, God, you told me to go this way. God, I felt like I was following you. I felt like I was doing what you wanted me to do. And then he goes into something that I think is so incredibly important. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I think that Jacob has finally come to the conclusion that it's not because of his family that God loves him so much. It's not because of any of those things. Because he looks at himself and he says, I'm not worthy to have received your steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown your servant. I mean, when he looks back over his life, when he's finally being confronted with the reality that he is not in control, that his self-reliance His ingenuity, his ability to deceive will not save him. When he finally comes to that point, what he sees and what he finally realizes is that I don't deserve anything that God has given me. I don't deserve the mercy, the steadfast love, the faithfulness. I don't deserve any of it at all. This is the language of mercy. This is the language that says, I can't get myself out of this mess. And he begs for God's help. He says, for with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. I I came across the Jordan River with just a staff in my hands. He left mom and dad's house Esau completely ticked at him with just a staff. He was on the move as quick as he could, getting away from him. I had nothing. He says, I came across this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. How can I account for that? Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand what you have? And I mean material blessing. Do you understand what God has given you? Do you understand the, the, the abilities that he's given you to be able to work with your hands or to be able to delegate and manage and do things that God has called you to do? And so many times we believe that we have caused these things in our life. We've been self-reliant all along. But Jacob's beginning to get it right and he says, I crossed this Jordan and all I had was a staff in my hand. I didn't have nothing. You came into this world naked. And God has given you everything that you have. You are breathing his air. He's given you life. He's given you everything. And would we have the audacity 
to speak in, 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 in some respect with contempt towards God and to say to him that somehow he owes me something else when everything that you have was a gift from him, when every detail of your life is something that he has given you. You might say, well, I've had a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. Well, so have a lot of people. And you have life, and you have gifts, and you've been able to make it in some respect or another, and yet we don't honor God almost at all, but Jacob's beginning to get it. And now comes the prayer of dependence. Verse 11 and, and I, the thing that I think about this is, is that I just go, this, it almost reverts to childlike faith. God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. I mean, it's just so simple. God, it's just, I'm just, I'm so hosed if you don't help. I'm in so much trouble. If you do not help me in this situation, God, if you do not work, we used to, to say early on in the life of the church, God had communicated something to me, which is, if God doesn't move, we fail. And that's what he's saying right here. God, if you don't move, if you don't act here in this situation, I'm a failure. I'm a dead man. God, you've got to move in my life. You've got to make it happen. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, because I'm scared. God, I'm just going to say I'm scared. I'm, I don't have anybody else that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. Look at Jacob. He's not just concerned for his own skin anymore. And now he's thinking about his family. Now he's singing about other people, and, he, and he's, starting, he's praying for them too, and he's saying, God, help me, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offering as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Are you exhausted? Are you at this place? where you finally say, okay, God, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I can't make it happen. Here's what's, if you're not there, here's, here's what's really difficult. And that is that God uses pain and suffering in order to bring us to a place of complete reliance. God uses pain and suffering I'm out of time and I have half of my sermon left. And so I'll have to finish it up next week. Because there's a great other part of this story that I think is just fantastic and I, I want to share it with you, but you're going to have to come back next week. But let me just leave you with this. And that is that God isn't finished with you. He's working in your life in spite of all of your screw-ups. In spite of the fact that you may be sitting here right now, you're right, Matt. I am not reliant on God. Like how many of us, and this is not everybody in this room by any means, but how many of us grew up in the church and we think we're just fine? 
And some of us have grown up in the church and we think we're just fine and we don't really need God because we've got good jobs and good skills and good people skills and maybe good relationships and stuff like that. And then maybe on top of that, God has brought pain and suffering into our life and yet we still have not relented and have not said, okay, God, I'm done relying on self. We're still in this place of obstinance. We're still in this place of refusing to repent, refusing to acknowledge God as the only one who's done me good, as the only one who's given me everything that I need. But here's God's good word for you, that he who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion. And it is in and through Jesus Christ that that even happens. You may be sitting here this morning saying, I'm not reliant on him. I haven't been reliant on him. That, that I haven't been perfect in that respect. And that's okay because of this. Because Jesus went to the cross for you in your place. So that all of his perfections would become yours. All of his reliance on God the Father would become your reliance on him. It is as though it, you did it. God has already counted to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the cross. And it is available to you because he went to the cross for you. You might say, I don't deserve it. That's exactly right. Now you've got the gospel. I've done nothing for it. That's exactly right. That's the gospel. You can't do anything. And if you think that you can, you don't have it. Jesus went to the cross for self-reliant people. Now I want you to come back next week and hear more about how God accomplishes this work in Jacob. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you have shown us real people in history. That the life of Jacob is, although it's blessed, you've, you blessed him, he's not a perfect person. And God, you're showing us that you don't bless perfect people. God, you bless them so that they can become perfected in you. So Lord, this is a lesson that we must learn. Lord, purge us of our self-reliance, of our self-willed nature. Lord, Lord, bring us to a point of needing you so badly because you're the only one that can accomplish what needs to happen in our life. Lord, may we trust in you even when sometimes you don't answer that prayer. Even when that you, you decide not to allow us out of this situation. Lord, may we understand that it is for our reliance. It is for our good.